This episode of the Art of Manliest podcast is brought to you by Visit Milwaukee. Have you ever had a craft beer while doing yoga in an art museum? No? Well, that's the kind of stuff that happens in Milwaukee or Milwaukee, which is Algonquian for the good land. I learned that from Alice Cooper in Wayne's World. No wonder it's named the Midwest's coolest and most underrated city by Vogue. They even host the biggest music festival in the world called Summerfest, and people actually surf there. Surf? How's that happening? Sometime randoms, but always wonderful. Go visit Visit Milwaukee org slash plan to get your trip started. Again, visit milwaukee.org slash plan to get your trip started to Milwaukee. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when you think about wit, what comes to mind? Someone who's quick with a funny remark? My guest today says that while humor is one part of wit, it's really better thought of in a broader way as a kind of improvisational intelligence. His name is James Geary, and he's the author of the book Wit's End, What Wit Is, How It Works, and Why We Need It. Today on the show, we discuss all things witty. We begin our conversation describing the nature of wit and how it's linked to one's all-around sense of resourcefulness. James then makes the case that instead of getting our contempt, puns should actually be praised as sophisticated forms of wit. We then dig into what fencing, as the sport of fencing, not putting in fence in your backyard, and jazz can teach us about the role of improvisation in wit and why we need wit more than ever in these days and what you can do to start being a bit more witty. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash wit. James joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, James Geary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. She's got a new book out, Wit's End. What wit is, how it works, and why we need it. So what got you thinking about wit and deciding there needs to, we need to have an entire book dedicated to wit? Was it you had an experience with an incredibly witty person, or is, have you been trying to capture what wit is for like your entire life? Well, I've, I've always been interested in language and wordplay since, since I was really a, a little kid. There are not many or any books in my house when I was growing up. But we did, my family subscribed to two magazines. One was Time Magazine and the other was Reader's Digest. And I ended up becoming a journalist and actually working for Time Magazine eventually. And Reader's Digest, that was the place where I first discovered quotable quotes, that page in the, in the magazine and every issue where you have a collection of sayings from various celebrities and famous people. And... I remember reading, uh, when I was about eight years old, the following quotable quotes, the difference between a rut and a grave is the depth. And that's an aphorism. I didn't know about aphorisms when I was eight, but there was something about that, that saying in particular and quotable quotes in general that really fascinated me. And I just became, over the years, obsessed with that kind of use of language, very concise, funny, paradoxical, philosophical. And I ended up going on to write a couple books about aphorisms. And, and from there, I was led to metaphor because I was trying to figure out how aphorisms work. Aphorisms are really just short, witty, philosophical sayings, working mostly through metaphor, like the one about the rut and the grave. Those are just metaphors. And then I ultimately alighted <laughs> on wit as the kind of the, the fundamental operating system in our brains that allows us to have these kind of 
witty insights and philosophical musings and to be able to express them, not just in language, but in all kinds of forms. And one of the things that the book explores is verbal. It can be intellectual. It can be visual. And I think that's that's the sort of the origin story for my for my fascination with with wit. Were were you afraid that by putting wit under the microscope, like you would kill it in the process? Like you know, people who analyze jokes, like you know, scholars who analyze jokes, like they make it make a joke unfunny by by figuring out what makes a joke funny. <laughs> yeah, not only was I afraid of that, Brett, but I actually did that. I actually <laughs> the the first version of the book, the first my first the first chapters that I wrote were truly horrific. And just uninteresting, not funny at all, and completely uninspiring. And I had a little crisis, actually not a little crisis, a a big crisis early on when I was trying to actually write the book, where I thought it would not be possible to write the kind of book I wanted to write. Because like you say, I didn't want to write a book that completely destroyed the liveliness and the fun and the joy and the surprise of wit by analyzing it to death. and. I discovered that by trying to write it in a kind of conventional, straightforward, nonfiction type treatment, that that's unfortunately exactly the effect I was having. But at the time, our son, our eldest son, was in drama school, and he mentioned to me one day that his uh, class was, they were watching, going to watch the film, some films of Buster Keaton, a, a fantastic silent film star from the 1920s, and as an example of wit. And I said, oh, wow, that's, you know, and I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan and, and my son, you know, our kids grew up watching Buster Keaton films. So I said, well, you know, you should tell your, your teacher that I'm writing a book about wit or uh, I'm so far unsuccessfully writing a book about wit and I'll be happy to come down and, and give a talk about that subject. And to my surprise, she agreed and invited me down. And I did this talk to my son's class. And as part of the class, we did some improv exercises that that actors do. And during that afternoon that that was happening, I thought, oh, this is the way, here I am standing in front of a group of aspiring actors who specialize in dialogue and you know creating scenes. And I thought, well, this is the way I need to write the book. The, the chapter on witty banter and verbal wit, which I was struggling with at the time, I need to write it like a play and show, you know, there's a classic journalistic uh, dictum, show, don't tell. I can show how wit works, how verbal fireworks, witty fireworks work, rather than trying to explain it to people. And that's how I kind of alighted on the idea to write each chapter in a different style. So the chapter on verbal wit, well, actually there's a couple. One is written in the form of a play. Another is written in the form of a rap song, lyrics to a a rap hip hop song. There's a chapter on uh, the neuroscience of wit, how wit works in the brain, and that's written like a scientific paper. There's a chapter written in iambic pentameter, the heroic couplets of Alexander Pope, an English poet from the 18th century who's a great, great wit and wrote a lot about wit. There's a poem about the spirituality, the spiritual side of wit, which is written like a sermon, like you would hear in church on a Sunday. And once I realized that was the mechanism through which I could tell this story by writing in these different styles and taking on these different voices, then it became paradoxically really easy to write. And I felt like, and I hope I hope that's also the experience of readers, that I bring wit to life on the page rather than kill it through over-analysis or, or over-explanation. 
No, you're successful. This was a fun read. It, <laughs> okay. As you said, it changes up throughout the book. Um, so we've been talking about wit. And I think people, most people, like they know wit when they see it. They know when they see a witty person. But I think if you pressed most people to say, what, what is wit? What makes a witty remark witty? They'd probably be like, mm, uh, well, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to, they'd just be hemming and hawing. Yeah. Um, so like, what, what is wit? Are there elements that are necessary for a, a phrase or a word or whatever to be witty? Yeah, I think there are. And I think... Um I think the first, uh, I think we tend to think when we think of wit, we tend to think of verbal wit and someone being funny. And while being funny is certainly an aspect of wit, it's not the defining characteristic of wit. You can be witty and not funny at all. So my definition, the one that I came to as I researched the book is wit is the ability to think, say, or do the right thing at the right time in the right place. And if you think about the way we use the word wit in, in everyday conversation, we say we're living by our wits, or we've come to our wits end, or we need to keep our wits about us, or someone is dim-witted or quick-witted or a nitwit. <laughs> um, these are all uh, you know, very familiar phrases, the way we use wit in, in just normal conversation. And none of them have anything to do with being funny. Um, what they what they all share those expressions is is wit as a kind of improvisational intelligence, and that's why my definition doesn't specifically mention being funny because you can be like I said you can be witty without without being funny, and someone who who for example is living by their wits, they're not being funny they're being resourceful they're being ingenious they're solving problems when they have few resources, and I think that's the essence of wit. And part of that um, essence involves, and I think this, this is where it intersects with verbal wit, it, it involves surprise or novelty because a witty saying, we, we, we recognize and we laugh at a, a witty saying because it surprises us in some way. It's unexpected or it gives some kind of twist to, to what, what might seem familiar on the surface, but by just giving it a little um, twist, it brings a new aspect of that thing to light. So I think the the intersection between, and, and in fact, wit, the, the original, the way the word was originally used, you know, hundreds of years ago in English, was more to indicate someone's intelligence or acumen rather than their sense of humor. And if you look at the etymology of the word, it comes from, wit comes from a Sanskrit verb, which is vid, which means to see. And that's where the word video comes from, for example. The, the verb vid and to see is also a metaphor for to know or to understand, you know, like I see what you mean means I understand what, you know, what you're saying. And wit uh, shares that same etymological root, the Sanskrit ver verb vid, with the word wisdom. So wit and wisdom actually can be traced back to the same word and Basically, their original meanings are the same. I have a book here on my desk, Women's Wit and Wisdom. It's a collection of aphorisms by female uh, writers. And the title is actually redundant. It might as well be, you know, Women's Wit and Wit or Women's Wisdom and Wisdom because wit and wisdom really mean identical things. And so I think that's what the, the real essence of wit is. It's a kind of uh, improvisational intelligence, um, spontaneous kind of ability to react to things in the moment, to think on your feet, 
And that kind of sheds some kind of light or provides some kind of insight on a common, a common experience or a common challenge or a common problem. Oh, I want to dig deeper into the, the, the etymology and sort of the concept of wit because, okay, you mentioned resourcefulness, sort of improvisation. You had a chapter talking about how this idea even goes back to the ancient Greeks with Odysseus. Like Odysseus, he kind of represented this idea of metis. Uh, yeah. What what is metis? Is that just resourcefulness? Is that what is that is that what that means? Yeah, metis is is a kind of sh- I guess the the best way to translate it would be a shrewdness or a kind of mental agility uh, involving like being able to improvise. And so Odysseus, you know, the the famous example is the the Trojan horse. You know, he's trying to attack attack Troy, but the city is so well defended, they would never be able to to break through. So he comes up with the plan of, you know, hiding a bunch of soldiers in this huge wooden horse that they're uh, allegedly offering as a peace a peace offering. And, you know, of course, the, the Trojans take it in and at night all the soldiers jump out and slaughter everyone. But the whole the Odyssey, you know, the whole uh, epic, Greek epic Odyssey is about uh, Odysseus getting into all kinds of scrapes and difficult situations, partly through his own, you know, his own kind of ego- egoism and uh, stubbornness. But he always manages to kind of find a way out. And he's, it's so Odysseus is a great example of someone who lives by, by his wits. That's, that's what that whole epic is, is about, him getting out of these really dangerous, uncomfortable situations that he's, he's gotten himself into. So I think Metis is, in, in Greek mythology is, and Greek literature is that kind of improvisational intelligence that allows you to, to escape tricky situations and solve difficult problems. And there's a wonderful, Homer uses a wonderful word to describe Odysseus at the very beginning of the Odyssey, and the English translation is, is a man of many turns. And I think that's just a beautiful way to think about wit, um, because it is, it does have that idea of resourcefulness and being, you know, versatile in, in the face of adversity. And also, like we were talking about a minute ago, just being able to turn something, you know, we say, <laughs> We say, you know, he has a nice turn of phrase, or you can turn the tables on someone or turn things around. And being a a person of many turns, I think is probably, it's a really elegant and and poetic definition of a fundamental personal characteristic of wit. Well, one story you also talk about that uh, exemplifies, Odysseus exemplifying wit is verbal. So not only did he, did he do witty things, but he he said witty things. Like the one that's really famous is when he's in the cave with the cyclop Polyphemus and Polyphemus asks him, what's your name? And Odysseus says, no one, right? And it's, he's sort of, as like a pun. I forget, isn't there, there is like a pun. If you look, if you know the Greek, that is a pun, correct? Yes. So the pun there is actually on the word metis. So there's different ways in ancient Greek, and I'm by no means a, an ancient Greek scholar, but the way that you can say I am no one in a couple of different ways, one way is, is involves the word metis. It's it's a different word from the, the, the one we've just been discussing, but it sounds exactly the same when it's said aloud, which is basically what a pun is. It's a, it's two different words that sound the same and have two different meanings. And so when in that scene where he's trying to escape the, the cy- cyclops, he's actually blinded the cyclops. He's gotten him drunk. <laughs> so, you know, the cyclops is kind of passed out on the sofa and Odysseus blinds him. 
and so that he and his soldiers can escape from the cave that they're trapped in. And when when he does that, the Cyclops screams, you know, he says, who is who, who's done this to me? And Odysseus says, no one, I am no one. But when he says no one, it means no one, I am nobody, but it also means I am wit, because the word is metis. So <laughs> Odysseus is saying two things at the same time. He's saying, I am no one, and I am wit. And that is another example of that kind of resourcefulness. In this case, it's a kind of cruel resourcefulness, but you know, his life was at stake and that of his, his soldiers. Um, but, you know, when he says, I am wit, he's saying, I am this, I am this person of many turns <laughs> and I've just turned, turned the tables on you, Cyclops, by blinding you so that uh, we could all escape. So I think that's a really fun way for Homer to communicate this idea of metis in, in action through, through uh, Odysseus's story. Yeah, and so for the, the story goes on, when the Cyclops starts yelling out, oh, no one is hurting me, and all the other Cyclops are like, then why are you yelling? Right, that is, <laughs> exactly. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah, this is very, very clever. He's got him coming and going there, uh, Odysseus. Well, so let's talk about different forms of wit, and so we can explore these ideas of improvisation. You start off talking about puns being a form of wit, but for a lot of folks, like puns are like the lowest, like eye-rolling form of humor. But you think that's an unfair characterization. Yes. Why do you think that is? Um, yeah, because I, first of all, I, I've never understood why puns are so reviled, you know, that, um, and of course, when you make a pun, what's the first thing you say? Oh, sorry, no pun intended. And I don't think puns are anything that we should apologize for it because I do think they are, in in, in many ways, they're, they're the most pedestrian as well as the most profound example of wit uh, in daily life. And they're pedestrian because everybody, you know, makes puns, everybody gets puns, but they're profound because I think they touch on the real essence of wit. And that is making these novel, surprising, instantaneous combinations between things or among things that on the surface are not alike and are not similar in any way. And so I think it's a, and I think that kind of wit, the sort of recombinatory aspect of wit is the essence of human creativity, really, because I think creativity is taking what you know and combining what you know in ways that create that create new things or create things that you don't know. And so the pun that we've just been discussing on Metis, I think, is a great example of that. Odysseus is, is He's both, he's doing so many things in that pun. He's confusing and overcoming an, an adversary, but he's also making a very profound statement about what wit is and, and how it works and why we need it. In fact, <laughs> that's, that's the, subhead, the subtitle of my book. And I think that, that one pun uh, really sums it up. And I think what's also interesting about puns is that the person who makes a pun and the person who gets the pun or receives the pun are really performing exactly the same kind of creative work. They're making exactly the same creative connections. It's just that the person who makes the pun is kind of making that connection in one direction, and the person who receives the pun is making the connection in the other direction. There's a great example. I did a talk a while back in, in Washington, in D.C., and as part of the, the talk that I do about about my book, I have a pun competition towards the end of the, 
the talk and I ask for volunteers from, from the audience and we, we name a theme like plants or, or something like that or modes of transportation or body parts and the, the volunteers have to make a pun on that theme right away or they sit down. And then the last person standing and the last person punning wins a, a free copy of my book. So if the subject were body parts, for example, you could say something like, I browse the web when I look for information. Eyebrow, it's a pun on a body part. So, <laughs> so as part of that, the pun competition, I also ask the audience to shout out themes that they might want to have the volunteers pun on. And of course, this was in DC. So someone shouted out the wall. And that no one could come up with a pun on that <laughs> right away. But a, a woman in the back of the uh, back of the room shouted out, don't take offense. And I think that's a great example of how puns can be profound because it's a pun, a fence and a fence. But it's also kind of making a political social statement about the whole idea of the wall and the purpose of the wall and how the wall has become one of the, the many things that, that people are, have become so polarized around. So I think that's why not all puns are of that high level, but I think that's all puns, even the worst puns, really speak to this essential creative aspect of the human mind to create surprising, novel, and, and really fertile, creatively and intellectually fertile combinations. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Fruit of the Loom's Cool Zone Fly Boxer Brief. When it comes to your underwear, feeling cool is pretty cool. And if you're wearing Fruit of the Loom's Cool Zone Fly Boxer Brief, you would be feeling both cool and cool right now. Fruit of the Loom has upgraded their cotton boxer brief by adding a ventilated mesh fly to promote airflow and support right where you need it the most. The Cool Zone Fly Boxer Briefs are consumer tested and expertly designed. Each pair features dual defense technology designed to wick away moisture and defend against odor, keeping you dry and fresh. The plush backed waistband won't pinch or bind, and there's no itchy tag. And with no right up legs and breathable mesh, the Cool Zone Fly Boxer Brief is made for guys who want to stay cool and comfortable all day long. They sent me a pair. I've got to try these out, and they are cool as in they, they feel ventilated, right? It's nice. So the mesh is a game changer. I also like the fact they don't ride up your leg, which is an annoying thing about boxer briefs. So you don't have to adjust yourself. Very nice. If you are someone who could use a little extra ventilation in your life, head over to fruit.com to check out the ventilated fly yourself and use code manliness to receive an additional 10% off your current promotion of 20% off the cool zone fly boxer briefs. Again, that's fruit.com promo code manliness to receive an additional 10% off their current promotion of 20% off the cool zone fly boxer brief. Also by Harry's. It's travel season, summertime, and a lot of guys buy disposable razors when they travel. But this summer, you don't have to sacrifice quality for price. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's and claim your special offer by going to harrys.com slash manliness. Harry's delivers high quality travel-friendly shave supplies at a great low price, just $2 per blade. To keep prices low, they cut out the middleman by purchasing a world-class blade factory in Germany. And now they can provide great quality at factory direct prices. Been using Harry's for a while now, unlike a lot of other multi-blade cartridges, this doesn't give me any um, razor burn, razor bumps, no irritation. Great shave. They've also got other great shave products, shave cream that's really nice as well. If you'd like to try this out, got an offer for you. This summer, refresh your wallet and your face with a Harry's trial set. It comes with a weighted ergonomic handle for an easy grip, five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade for a close shave, rich lathering shave gel that will leave you smelling great, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go. Listeners on my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com manliness. So make sure you go to harrys.com slash manliness to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. And now back to the show. So when my kids start making 
pun jokes. I should encourage that. Absolutely. <laughs> and you should participate. <laughs> right. And it I seems do- like that's like one of the first forms of humor like that they develop. Like they start seeing how language can be used in different ways and mean this you say one word but it means different things. Yeah. And I think that's like I remember when our oldest child, the 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 one who went to drama school, he was 2 and you know, he was just learning to talk and I remember I was with him and he was standing on the dresser. I was probably just getting him dressed or something like that. And he was looking out the window and he pointed up into the sky to the sun and he said, big sky lamp. <laughs> and that's a beautiful metaphor for the sun. And that's the way kids learn. So when your kids are are, are punning, they are in their mind connecting something they don't know with something that they do know. And that's the way we learn. That's the way human beings learn from childhood on up to adulthood. And that's also the, the essence of metaphor. And so my son, in, my son, here's another pun, my son in talking about the sun was comparing it to a lamp, which was something that he knew and trying to understand what the sun was by comparing it to a lamp. And that's where he came up with big sky lamp. One chapter that I really enjoyed was where you had these two guys talking about wit but like as a fencing lesson, like fencing with swords, mm-hmm. like what can fencing teach us about the art and nature of wit? Yeah, the um, if you think of some of the, the the phrases that we use to describe wit, cutting wit, a cutting remark, you're someone's like a witty person has a foil, which is someone who's not as witty, who they use for the you know to bounce their jokes off of. There's also the the word in English "repost," which is actually a French word, and it's taken from fencing, and it means your reply to an attack. The same the same is true for the word "parry." When someone attacks you and you kind of repel that attack, that's called a parry. And all those words are used when we talk about wit. You know, I parried his criticism. Well, he insulted me, but I had a really great repost. And those are actual fencing terms. And I noticed that, and then I just started investigating fencing. And it actually is part of my research for the for the book. I took fencing lessons. And what I realized is that fencing is, is a very, it's a sport that involves incredible precision and it's a very highly choreographed sport and it happens like so fast you can't even you know like i would watch fencing competition i wouldn't even wouldn't even be able to see what they were actually doing and i think that's in so many ways analogous to the more combative forms of wit which is you know like classic example would be groucho marx you know there's a sort of edge another kind of fencing term he has a sharpness and an edge to his his uh, one-liners that I think is is very very similar to fencing. And when you're arguing with someone, you're you're pitting your wits against someone else. It's very much like fencing, because a lot of the the art of fencing is is in footwork. It's in kind of preparing the ground before you strike. And I think that's true for wit as well. If you take the Socratic method of argument or teaching, where you have two people going back and forth in a, in a dialogue, trying to convince each other of a point of view. That's very much like fencing, just as two fencers are kind of arranging their footwork and dancing around, trying to get their opponent in a position that makes them vulnerable to attack. That's what happens in, in witty repartee and, and uh, witty banter and witty argument. You're trying to kind of say things and position yourself verbally 
so that you can land that strike with your <laughs> with your sword or with your sharp-edged uh, words. So I think understanding fencing really helped me understand that that particular form of verbal wit, which is kind of more combative and and more insulting than than other kinds of verbal wit. Well, a more modern or recent iteration of that combative wit is like the dozens you talk about where it takes part in predominantly African-American communities where you know, men, typically it's men. They'll get and have these competitions where they, they're sort of like rap battles, but like, I mean, that rap battles is another example of wit on display, but the, the dozens is where you just do insults at each other back and forth and whoever can do the best insult wins. Yeah. And I think rap battles can you know they they really do come from that uh, history of the dozens like in researching the dozens it's so fascinating and there's so, such great lines like when i remember um the whole point of the dozens is you're insulting you know your opponent and you want to insult him or her in such an expert way that they kind of concede and 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 quit and one of the lines was like you know you're so dumb you think the su- supreme court is where diana ross plays tennis <laughs> i just think that that's such a brilliant it's like really insulting but it's it's done in such a funny way and it's done in such an elegant way as as well and i think that's again also analogous to fencing you know fencing is actually a like a really violent sport but it's it's done in this beautiful almost ballet like choreographed way that the way that those moves are are presented is just beautiful to to watch and i think the same is tr- is true in the dozens and and those and actually the dozens all around the world there are these forms of verbal combat that people indulge in to, you know just as kind of entertainment it's it's not it doesn't lead to violence or anything like that um it's more just like a way to pass the time but the rap, you know, rap battles today are very much coming from that uh, tradition of of the dozens, and one of the reasons that I wrote one chapter as a as a rap song is I think you know rap is such really uh, like the height of witty expression in in popular culture, and you know just you know some of the the lyrics of rap songs. And I'm thinking of people like J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar. I think they're just such exquisite <laughs> use of language and making, you know, social political critique through a very elegant, but at times really, really cutting use of, of witty language. And I tried to emulate that in, in, the, in the chapter uh, that I wrote in the style of a, a rap song. Well, another way music can be cutting, you talk about this too, sort of a forerunner to rap battles or the dozens was in the, during the jazz age where piano players would have these cutting uh, sessions where basically they would have these improvisation competitions where one guy would play a tune and then they pass it off the next guy and who could do the best improvisation on the piano and they pass it back and forth and you you wanted to see who could be the wittiest piano player yeah and that's that's like um uh, and you, that still exists you know if you go to a jazz gig today that still exists in the in the tradition of trading solos. You know the you know the the band starts playing all together, then the sax takes a solo, and then the the pianist or the double bass player or the drummer, and they each kind of take a turn. And it's that comes back to you know Odysseus and you know the the person of many turns. What's happening in jazz improvisation is that they're taking that musical phrase, and as you say, you know part of that improvisational passages are 
just trying to see how many different ways they can turn that musical phrase and make it something different and build on what the previous player was playing. And that's a great, that, that aspect of improvisation, when you're taking something and building on it in the moment spontaneously, that's a key aspect of, of, of wit. And in the, in the chapter on the neuroscience of wit that I mentioned earlier, they've done studies, they've put jazz musicians and rappers in MRI machines and, and scanned their brains <laughs> while they are improvising and compared that to their brains while they're kind of playing something from memory or playing uh, reciting pre-written lyrics rather than improvising them off the dome. And there's different areas of your brain that are active when you're improvising and creating things spontaneously, as opposed to when you're you know, reciting something from memory or reading something from, from a page. And that area of the brain that's active when you're improvising and making things up on the spot, that's a, a crucial area of the brain for wit, because that is the that is the area of the brain that's active when you're trying to solve a problem with few resources, or you're engaged in you know the dozens, and you need to have a <laughs> a, a smart, witty comeback to someone. So it's interesting to see how all the kind of human activities, human create creative activities that, that have to do with spontaneously generating ideas. They're all involved in this in this one brain network. So an aspect of wit is there has to be another person to understand the witty remark, right? If you if you say something witty and no one gets it, like, are you actually being witty? Right? Like, <laughs> that's a very relevant question for me because I often say something that I think is funny and nobody gets it. You're right. I think you know we 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 say it's a a private joke. You know, you can have private jokes and you can laugh to yourself, laugh inwardly. But I do think wit needs witnesses. And in fact, witness is actually uh, from that same Sanskrit verb, vid, to see, and it's related to wit and wisdom. And I think the, so, you know, it's like the famous question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a noise? And I think in the case of wit, it probably doesn't not make a noise because wit does require wit like a, like we were discussing about puns you can make a pun but a pun it doesn't it doesn't come into its its fullness of being unless someone deciphers it someone unless someone gets it and that requires another person and what i think is so interesting about wit is it it is a collaboration between two people to create the wit or to, to complete the wit. And if you think about jokes, you know, you've got a joke and it's got different parts and you've got the, you know, the setup and you've got the punchline, but the punchline is never explicitly explained. You know, if it is, it's then a, it's, it's, it's a terrible joke. And, you know, we say a person, you get it, you get the punchline. And I think that's a well-chosen verb because it does require the, the, the hearer to kind of go out and meet the teller of the joke halfway. And in many ways, the, like we're talking about, about puns, the person who hears a joke is doing exactly the same creative work as the person who's telling the joke. And the joke does not exist until it's completed completed in the mind of the, uh, of the listener when the, you know, the listener goes out and gets it. 
And I think that's why what's so special about WIT is it, it does create this kind of bond. It creates this kind of intimacy because there, you are kind of working with someone else's mind in that moment to create the, the wit that, that, that happens. And I think you see that, you know, like why does every, almost every public speaker begin a speech by telling a joke? And I think it's because a joke, a witty joke, a witty remark, some kind of self-deprecating humor creates that kind of bond because you're, you're, you're inviting uh, your audience to complete this journey with you. And that when when you complete that journey, it creates this kind of almost a in a, in a positive sense. It's like a your co-conspirators. You're you're working together to achieve this goal, which is wit. And I think that's why it's essential that wit is a kind of it's a collective experience. It, it takes at least two people for for something to be witty. Yeah, I think you wrote at one point in the book. It said the perfect witty expression can include so much or like mean so much because it leaves so much out. So like it, by leaving a lot out, you force the other person to construct it in their head, which allows them to get more meaning out of the, the witty remark. Yeah, that's exactly it. And there's a great Polish aphorist, uh, Stanislav Letz. In, in my opinion, he's perhaps the, the greatest aphorist of all time. And one of his sayings is, um, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. And if you think about that, <laughs> if you think about that literally, it makes absolutely no sense. And, and there's no kind of literal clue in the literal meaning of any of those words as to what the actual meaning of the saying is. But the actual meaning, like you were just saying, it has to be completed by the listener. And Let's in, in writing that, he leaves out all the most important bits. You know, what the saying is really about is groupthink and how people in a group, it's easier for people to be, to go along with decisions that they might otherwise resist if everybody in the, else in the group is going along with it. And he, he was writing, he, he lived in Poland during, you know, the time of the Soviet Union. So he was writing about authoritarianism and political oppression and groupthink in, in that context. But the way he leaves so much, he leaves all of that out of the story. And it's the listener who has to provide that. And that's a great example of the kind of collaboration and co-creation that's involved in, in any kind of witty remark or, or witty experience. What do you think the state of wit is today? Because I think oftentimes people think of like witty people, it's always from the past. And I, I imagine that's because like the really really witty remarks like we just they they stand the test of time but do you, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think wit is is wit alive and well today or is it on the decline <laughs> you know i think there's there's i i don't think wit like i think wit is always i don't think wit can kind of it's not like the stock market it can go up and down i think it's a fundamental way that the human brain works and so it's always there but I think in certain eras or certain periods of time, people think that way more or think that way less. So if, I don't know, if you're looking at late night comedy, for example, then there's plenty of wit around. But if you take a look at a broader look and understand wit, like, like I've tried to understand it in the book, as not just about being funny, but as a way of thinking and as a way of solving problems and a way of making connections, because I think wit is more about making connections than it is just simply about making jokes. 
then I think it would be pretty easy to conclude that we're living in a kind of witless age, <laughs> sadly, because if you look at our political and social debates, how polarized and partisan they have become, that is by definition rejecting the kind of collaboration and cooperation that's required to for wit to take place. You know, you have to listen and you have to respond. You don't have to agree by any means, but wit can only happen if people are in relationship and they're listening to and responding to one another in a kind of genuine, sincere, constructive way. And when it comes to making connections, if you look at any of our biggest challenges uh, as, a, as a society, as a planet today, they are all interconnected. They're all multidisciplinary. And I think witty thinking is, is the ability to make connections among all these different fields and also to listen to diverging points of view. And again, not necessarily to accept or agree with them, but to listen and then try and come to a synthesis that, that brings all those things together. That would be, for me, like a really encouraging and hopeful sign of, of us as a, as a society living by our wits. What can people do to start being more witty? Is it just making, telling more dad jokes, being more punny? I mean, is that, is that the start? Is that, I mean, is that the, I mean, what do you think? I think, well, I think it's, it's, um, I think, you know, part of being witty is being curious and noticing things and being alert to things. And that, that has to do with a kind of open, I think a witty state of mind is an open state of mind. You're, and that's again, you know, you mentioned your kids earlier, that's what children, you know, children are open to all these things and, and they don't kind of prejudge anything. So I think having that kind of open, curious, childlike mind in, in, in that sense is absolutely essential. And I think that's another trend that we see today is, you know, people being very focused on a single discipline, whether you're an academic or a professional, you know, this is my, my field and, and I, I know everything about my field, but I'm don't know that much about anything outside my field. And then um, it's it sounds kind of flippant and maybe tr- trivial, but I do think, you know, like you said, making puns is a really good way to train your your brain to be to be more witty. And, you know, having like the simple pun competition with yourself or with your family or with your friends, it's really fun, but it also you know the the way the way the human brain works and it, and the way it incorporates new experiences and new knowledge is by making different connections you know the synapses in our brain whenever we you know travel to a new place or meet a new person or learn something new new connections are formed in our brain our brain actually physically changes to incorporate this new knowledge and this this new information and when you're that that's um scientists called brain plasticity and it's just basically means the brain's ability to react spontaneously to new information and, and to respond and to to learn and to grow and like i said it may sound a little trivial or or silly but making puns actually that's what you're doing in your brain it's you know when you hear a good pun or you hear a good joke it's uplifting you know it really kind of perks you up it makes you more alert. And this is also has to do with brain chemistry and, you know, the neurochemicals that are released when we laugh or, or take in new information that has a really positive effect on our, our brain chemistry and our ability of our minds to keep making those connections as, as we age. So 
yes, I would, <laughs> I would urge everyone to make puns, um, make jokes and let your, let your, <laughs> you know, let your mind wander into those areas where you're, you can feel free to make new connections and, and new combinations. Well, James, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, absolutely. The book is available online, Amazon, or if you want to help out your local bookstore, IndieBound is a great um, a great way to connect with local independent book booksellers online. And if people are interested in learning more about my other books or other stuff that I do, they can check out my website, which is jamesgeary.com. Well, James Geary, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today was James Geary. He's the author of the book, Wit's End. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about James's work at his website, jamesgeary.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash wit, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finance, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father, you name it. And if you'd like to hear ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness, you can do so only on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code MANLINESS. After you sign up, you can download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and start enjoying the ad-free Art of Manliness experience. That's stitcherpremium.com and promo code manliness. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.